This podcast is a production of Open Pediatrics, an open access online community of healthcare professionals sharing best practices from around the world. Visit openpediatrics.org for more. Moya Moya disease. The learning objectives of this video are to describe the anatomy and pathophysiology of Moya Moya disease, explain the common preoperative evaluation for surgery to treat Moya Moya disease, provide an anesthetic management plan to be used during surgery to treat Moya Moya disease, describe several operative approaches used to treat Moya Moya disease, and anticipate the postoperative considerations following surgery to treat Moya Moya disease. Moya Moya disease is a rare cerebrovascular condition characterized by progressive stenosis of the intracranial internal carotid arteries and the proximal anterior and middle cerebral arteries, leading to an increased risk of stroke. The stenosis of these key vessels leads to development of dilated perforator branches of the internal carotid artery that provide collateral perfusion to the ischemic brain distal to the occlusion. The appearance of these vessels on angiography resembles moya moya, which means a puff of smoke in Japanese. Anatomy and Pathophysiology The cerebral blood supply can be divided into the anterior and posterior circulation, which are anatomically joined to form the circle of Willis. The most common path of blood flow from the aorta to the brain in the anterior circulation is the aorta brachiocephalic trunk, common carotid artery, and internal carotid artery. The internal carotid branches into the middle cerebral artery, anterior cerebral artery, ophthalmic artery, anterior choroidal artery, and posterior communicating artery. In Moya Moya disease, the distal internal carotid artery is narrowed. Often, the proximal anterior and middle cerebral arteries are narrowed as well. Patients can have unilateral or bilateral involvement. In bilateral Moya Moya disease, severity may differ between sides. Patients rarely have involvement from the posterior circulation, which includes the basilar artery and posterior cerebral arteries. The narrowed vessels are due to smooth muscle hyperplasia and luminal thrombosis. There is typically no microscopic evidence of arteriosclerotic or inflammatory changes. Stenosis of the internal carotid artery in its branches causes cerebral ischemia. This ischemia leads to compensatory formation of collateral vessels. The collaterals are dilated arteries thought to be a combination of pre-existing and newly developed blood vessels. Increased flow through these thin and fragile vessels predisposes them to microaneurysm formation and rupture within certain populations. Clinical Presentation the overall prevalence of Moya Moya disease is approximately 3 to 10 per 100,000. Moya Moya tends to have two incidence peaks, children around 5 years old and adults in their mid-40s. It affects females to males at a ratio of 2 to 1. It has the highest incidence in patients of Asian descent and is most prevalent in Japan, but occurs in children of all races and ethnicities. It is important to differentiate Moya Moya syndrome from true idiopathic Moya Moya disease. Unilateral vasculopathy is always considered Moya Moya syndrome. Moya Moya syndrome is when the Moya Moya cerebral vasculopathy occurs in patients with other disease entities and risk factors. 
Common associated diseases and conditions include vascular conditions such as atherosclerosis, vasculitis, polyarteritis nodosa, collagen vascular disorders, vasculopathies, and extracranial cardiovascular disorders, renal artery stenosis, and congenital heart disease, neurologic disorders such as cranial trauma, brain tumors, and cerebral infections, hematologic disease such as sickle cell disease, and multi-system disease such as lupus and Graves' disease, and genetic and developmental disorders such as neurofibromatosis and trisomy 21. Moyamoy disease is when patients have bilateral vasculopathy without any other associated conditions. The symptoms of Moyamoya can be divided into two etiologic categories due to brain ischemia and due to hemorrhage of collateral vessels. Ischemic symptoms are typically the presenting symptom for both adults and children. Symptoms are associated with regions of the brain which are receiving inadequate blood supply. The symptoms of brain ischemia, including strokes, transient ischemic attacks and seizures, hemiparesis, dysarthria, aphasia, and cognitive impairment are common. Children can also rarely present with choreiform movements due to dilated collaterals in the basal ganglia. Ischemic symptoms are often precipitated by exertion, hyperventilation with crying, dehydration, or anesthesia. Children have a higher rate of completed strokes than adults, thought to be because they cannot communicate TIA symptoms, delaying diagnosis. Intracranial hemorrhage for moya is rare in children and can occur from the rupture of fragile collateral vessels. The clinical presentation and natural history can vary widely between patients due to differences in the degree of arterial involvement and progression of stenosis. Progression can be slow with rare events or sudden with rapid, irreversible neurologic decline. However, the majority of patients will inevitably have progressive disease pathology over time. The best indicator of long-term outcome is neurological status at the time of surgical treatment. Diagnosis Moyamoya should be considered in all children with symptoms of cerebral ischemia. A head CT can sometimes be the first diagnostic test performed in Moyamoya disease, but is often not diagnostic. A head CT can show evidence of stroke or hemorrhage, but is often normal, especially in patients presenting with TIAs. Patients often undergo magnetic resonance imaging of the brain, with MR angiography being a particularly useful test. The MR can reveal characteristic flow void patterns, which are highly suggestive of Moyamoya. MRI can also reveal evidence of slowed blood flow, causing a radiographic finding called IV sign. The gold standard for diagnosis is conventional catheter-based angiography with a full study of the external and internal carotid arteries and the vertebral arteries. This allows for mapping of the patient's cerebral vasculature, which allows for surgical planning. The diagnosis is made by visualizing stenosis of the distal intracranial internal carotid arteries. Collateral routes of blood supply can be seen from the internal or external carotid arteries, but the external carotid injection on angiograms is the most critical for surgical planning as it is this set of imaging that allows the identification of transdural collaterals, 
or blood supply from outside the central nervous system that might be at risk during an operation in order to see and better avoid these vessels during surgery. The results from angiography can be used to classify the patient within the Suzuki grading system. The system classifies the extent of narrowing and collateral formation. Other diagnostic studies may be useful, such as EEG, which can show specific moya-moya-associated patterns in children, and cerebral blood flow studies, such as single photon emission CT, which can assess cerebrovascular reserve. Preoperative Evaluation There are no definitive medical options to manage moya moya disease, and therefore, patients usually require surgery to improve vascular blood supply. However, patients are often treated with antiplatelet agents in the perioperative period to prevent microthrombi formation at stenotic sites. Anticoagulants such as low molecular weight heparin or warfarin are rarely used for long-term therapy. Consultation of the neurosurgical service should be conducted when considering perioperative management of antiplatelet agents by the anesthesia team. Some centers will continue aspirin until the day of surgery, while others will bridge anticoagulation with low molecular weight heparin for one week prior to surgery. Rarely, calcium channel blockers can be effective in reducing the severity and frequency of moya-moya-associated headaches and TIAs but can be dangerous if they lower blood pressure, which can lead to stroke. Children with suspected moya-moya disease should undergo thorough workup for neurological symptoms. Due to more than half of these patients initially presenting with TIA, stroke, and or seizure, anti-seizure medications are commonly prescribed. Anti-seizure medications should be continued throughout the perioperative period, including on the morning of surgery. Symptom-free blood pressures obtained during preoperative appointments will establish baseline blood pressures for each patient prior to surgery in order to guide intraoperative hemodynamic goals. To help prevent hypovolemia during surgery, patients can be admitted the evening prior to surgery for aggressive intravenous hydration, which can be continued postoperatively until adequate oral hydration is achieved. Anesthetic Management Patients with moya-moya will have areas of decreased cerebral perfusion. The anesthetic regimen should maintain appropriate depth of anesthesia while minimizing hemodynamic effects to prevent further decreases in cerebral perfusion pressure and cerebral blood flow. In general, induction represents the highest risk period for hemodynamic depression. While propofol may reduce blood pressure, it also decreases the cerebral metabolic rate of oxygen thereby providing a degree of cerebral protection. Agents for maintenance anesthesia should allow for easy titration and have limited effects on mean arterial pressure, intracranial pressure, and cerebral perfusion pressure. Given the need for prompt postoperative neurological monitoring, the anesthetic should ideally be planned to allow for early extubation. Invasive arterial pressure monitoring is indicated so as to promote tight control of blood pressures. It is important to maintain normocarbia so as to ensure good cerebral blood flows. Likewise, it is important to maintain normothermia so as to maintain balance between cerebral metabolic rate of oxygen, which increases with hyperthermia, and risk of vasospasm, as occurs with hypothermia.
multimodal analgesia should be utilized to reduce postoperative pain and agitation, as well as minimize vomiting and crying, since hyperventilation can cause cerebral vasoconstriction and promote ischemia. Operative Approach The surgical technique used to improve cerebral perfusion includes revascularization. Revascularization can be direct or indirect. There are many factors that influence which technique is chosen and are beyond the scope of this video. Direct revascularization involves taking a branch of a different non-pathologic artery, typically the superficial temporal artery, and anastomosing it to a cortical artery, typically a branch of the middle cerebral artery. It can be an effective treatment to increase cerebral blood flow, reduce the frequency of strokes, reduce the formation of maladaptive collaterals, and improve symptomatology. It is usually performed on adults. The benefit of this technique is that it causes immediate increase to cerebral blood flow. One drawback of this technique is that it is technically difficult in children due to the small caliber of vessels, which in turn places these patients at high risk of post-operative emboli and vasospasm. Indirect revascularization involves placing vascularized tissue or a blood vessel in direct contact with the brain, causing collateral development to supply the cerebrum. The vascularized tissue's blood supply comes from the external carotid artery. The blood vessel commonly used for this technique is the superficial temporal artery. The benefit of this technique is that it can be used in children, doesn't require clamping off any cerebral blood flow, and has been shown to significantly reduce stroke over time. The drawback of this technique is that it takes three to four months for collaterals to develop, during which time patients are still at elevated risk for stroke. Peel synangiosis is a commonly used indirect revascularization technique developed by Dr. Michael Scott and the neurosurgeons at Boston Children's Hospital and will be the technique focused on in this video. The technique of peel synangiosis involves the following steps. A scalp artery, typically a branch of the superficial temporal artery, is dissected free. A craniotomy is performed, removing a piece of the skull bone. The dura is then opened in a stellate fashion while avoiding disruption of meningeal collateral vessels. This stellate technique increases the surface area of dura exposed to pia to encourage collateral formation between the dura and pia. Next, the arachnoid is opened widely under a microscope. Finally, the scalp artery is then sutured directly to the peel surface. Over weeks to months, collaterals will develop from the pia to supply the ischemic cerebrum. A subgroup of patients may have inadequate conducting arteries due to previous surgery, advanced moyamoya disease, or regions supplied by diseased anterior communicating arteries. The surgical technique that may be required in these patients involves placing burr holes over the ischemic region of the brain to enhance neovascularization of the underlying cerebral cortex. This relatively simple technique frequently promotes blood flow in the underlying cortex. Burr holes can be used as an adjunct to help revascularization, but are of limited use as a standalone operation except in specific cases, best reviewed on a case-by-case -case basis. Postoperative care. After peel synangiosis, the vast majority of patients have a significant reduction in the frequency of strokes over time. 
the vast majority of patients also experienced symptomatic benefit. However, the perioperative period is a particularly vulnerable time for development of complications. The feared complication of surgical revascularization is perioperative stroke. The risk of stroke is highest within the first 30 postoperative days, after which the risk significantly decreases. Other potential complications include infection and intracranial hemorrhage. In the postoperative period, patients should be closely monitored for hypotension, hypovolemia, hyperthermia, and hypo or hypercarbia. Patients should have frequent neurologic exams to monitor for symptoms of ischemia or hemorrhage. It is important that patients receive isotonic intravenous fluids during the postoperative period until they are taking adequate fluid volume by mouth to prevent dehydration and hypovolemia. Antiemetic therapy should be titrated to minimize nausea and prevent vomiting and associated increases in intracranial pressure. Hyperthermia can cause an increase in cerebral metabolic rate of oxygen and thus should be avoided. Precautions should be taken to minimize crying and hyperventilation, which both lower the partial pressure of carbon dioxide. This in turn can induce cerebral vasoconstriction, decrease cerebral blood flow, and therefore lead to ischemia. Effective pain control and appropriate sedation to prevent crying is essential to minimize the risk of stroke. Patients should receive immediate postoperative pain control and can require limited sedation for treatment of agitation. Patients who had TIAs within two weeks of admission are at highest risk of ischemic events, so more liberal use of sedation should be considered. Patients should also receive aspirin therapy to prevent thrombus formation starting on postoperative day one. If a patient develops acute ischemic symptoms, they should be given supplemental oxygen and isotonic fluid bolus. Hyperventilation and hypotension are to be avoided. Serum electrolytes and glucose levels should be checked and normalized. If imaging reveals no hemorrhage, antiplatelet agents can be adjusted or temporarily augmented. If the patient is having a seizure, appropriate anti-seizure medications should be given. This has been a production of Open Pediatrics. We have more podcasts like this one available everywhere you get your podcasts. Visit openpediatrics.org for more information. 